Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor of the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talisa Vanderbilt. In our bi-monthly podcasts, we interview philosophers about their new books across a wide variety of philosophical topics and areas. Today's interview is with Julia Tanney, reader in philosophy of mind at the University of Kent, We'll be talking about her new book, Rules, Reasons, and Self-Knowledge, which is just out from Harvard University Press. It's fair to say that philosophy of mind and the sciences of the mind generally adhere to an information processing model of cognition. A standard version holds that there are events going on in the brain that represent the world and that familiar psychological terms are used to refer to these events. In this volume of new and previously published essays, Julia Tanner mounts a sustained attack on this dominant view. Taking her cue from Gilbert Ryle and Ludwig Wittgenstein, Tanner argues that reasons for action are not content-bearing mental states, and that being rational is not learning certain rules. Instead, mental state ascriptions, in particular those of propositional attitudes, have the function of encapsulating or marking patterns of thoughts, actions, and sayings. That is, understanding the mind starts from the perspective of reasons explanations, which invoke sense-making patterns. We learn these sense-making patterns through acculturation, and ascribing mental states to others and to ourselves is a practice of pointing to a particular pattern, not to an event in the brain. Let's turn to the interview. I have with me here Julia Tanney, lecturer of philosophy at uh, the University of Kent. Hello, Julia. Hello. Hi. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you very much. Um, So I'm very excited to talk about your new book, Rules, Reasons, and Self-Knowledge, which uh, I sort of think of as a defense of a new neo-Rylean metaphysics of mind, and I know you don't... You don't agree with that that characterization, um, but uh, we can we can get into that um, very shortly. Uh, first, I guess to begin, if you can just maybe start us off with um, a little explanation of uh, uh, your philosophical interests and what what drew you to philosophy of mind and to the the sustained uh, interest in the issues that um, that are included in the book. Uh huh. Well, I I guess I became interested in philosophy of mind um, back when I was an undergraduate, and I took some I took, I took a David Paris uh, courses at UCLA on on uh, motivated irrationality, and um, those those were puzzles. Irrationality is a puzzle within philosophy of mind, and I started thinking about uh, rationality and irrationality. Um, and I sort of stayed with that that puzzle as a graduate student and started thinking a lot about the literature and how you would understand uh, what turned out to be the general problem of how to explain um, norms, which are in some sense constitutive norms, but at the same time norms that can be violated. 
And I realized that if I put it in that general kind of way, the problem of rationality or irrationality ramifies now into other kinds of problems. And in fact, it's what everybody talks about um, in ethics. They talk about it in moral philosophy. They talk about it in uh, philosophy of language. How can we be... Uh, how can what we say in one sense be be meaningful, but it, on the other hand, violate some some uh, some meaning rules, for example? And then I got um, the more I started thinking about that and trying to make some sense of it, and realizing there might be something wrong with the whole way the problem has been set up. In other words, I wasn't finding any obvious solutions to the problems that didn't come up with some sort of paradox on the on 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 the terms sort of on internal grounds on internal grounds so that given the terms of which I, in which I was trying to articulate the problem I couldn't I couldn't solve it so I started thinking about some of the presuppositions and then realizing hold on maybe there's something going on in the framework the way that this whole problem is couched um in particular, maybe it's when I start thinking about norms or rational norms as being themselves somehow embodied in mentality or mental states that I then can't make sense of the way in which they're violated, violable. So at that point, I think I started around the time I started reading more about more of Wittgenstein and his, his later work, Philosophical Investigations, and I realized that he was working on the same sorts of problems when, uh, well, throughout, and when he was talking especially about what it is to act in accordance with a rule or to follow a rule. Um, so I spent a lot of time reading Wittgenstein. Um, and then a little bit later, quite a few years later, I was sending off papers to publishers and and uh, journal journal editors, and one helpful referee wrote back and said, "If this author is going to try to bring back some of uh, some of these early Wittgensteinian or post Wittgensteinian sorts of ideas, she's going to have to address the arguments, the original arguments uh, that led us all to move away from those philosophers." So I thought that was fair enough. So I began rereading um, the concept of mind, Ryle's the concept of mind, and teaching that. And at the same time I was teaching that, I was teaching Wittgenstein, and I, I realized that there was much more of an affinity between what they were doing, although it doesn't seem like it on first sight. And I thought, that's interesting. Wittgenstein asks a question here. Ryle seems to answer it here. And then I became very interested in reading, seeing, seeing if I could read Ryle a little bit in the light of what I was learning in, in Wittgenstein. And then I started reading his, his meta-philosophy, his philosophy of language, which is, um, was actually very difficult to get a hold of. These are his collected papers, which are now republished. And I thought, whoa, he's, he's doing something, and he's, he's very clear that he's doing something uh, it's completely different from what what we're doing in contemporary analytic philosophy of mind, and it's also completely different from what people are are saying that he's doing. 
So I became, I, I developed a sort of side interest in Ryle because he put some of the ideas that I had already started to become attracted to and also ones that I, I felt I was learning from Wittgenstein, but he put them really very clearly. So that's, that's about how I got into these, into these particular authors and, and then still read some of their colleagues like John Wisdom and Stephen Toulmin and Anscombe. Meldon, Holland, uh, and find that there was a way of doing philosophy uh, that's kind of fallen off the map today, but that if you look very carefully at what they're what they're asking you to reject about the way that language works, you'll see that some of the problems that we're struggling with in philosophy of mind and in other other areas um, tend not to be problems. So it has to do eventually, in the end, it seems to have to do with some of the assumptions and philosophy of language that are getting us in, into trouble. But my method is very different from their, theirs because, of course, I, I'm trained in, in contemporary philosophy of mind. So I was brought up with it, and I was brought up with that vocabulary and that, that way of understanding that, that our mental expressions do uh, as it were, refer to mental states, and mental states are uh, divided into proposi- propositional attitudes and other kinds of states, and propositional attitudes are causally efficacious, content-bearing states. So the whole book, in a way, is is my journey away from that position. And uh, but but by trying to undo it, as it were, from the inside, taking away the the layers that that as I'm peeling them away and seeing how far I can peel some of, some of them away, how that impinges on some of the other areas in philosophy of mind, like, for example, in self-knowledge, or how that, how that impinges on some of the philosophically underlying um, suppositions about how cognitive science works. So philosophy of cognitive science, if you want. Um, and also something I've spent many, many years concentrating on, which is the whole reason and causes debate. So um, let me, uh, I mean, there's, there's two different ways to, to proceed. And I think first might, maybe you might articulate um, uh, some of the bigger, the bigger issues that you have with the, you know, the dominant paradigm of cognition as information processing. Uh, before we get to more details about your, um, your, your positive view, so to speak, um, what, what, what are the biggest issues you have with, with that paradigm? Um, in fact, my position is even more radical than that. And that is that I I don't even like the idea that um, that the expressions that we use that involve uh, concepts like belief or or hope or fear or think or know uh, actually function by and large to refer to some sort of uh, process, and so. If you reject that sort of picture, then it's, it's, it comes quite naturally then to say it's, we're not, we're not, I'm not committed to their, I'm not committed to saying that a process is, is, is being 
undergone by by an agent, for example, when I when I uh, ascribe intelligence to her or any of the other kind of cognitive terms that we use. Um, therefore, it's not. Uh, the kind of processing that goes on or processes that go on that, that are modeled on a computational device either. So do you see what I mean about it being quite radical? Yeah. And I'm, I'm trying, I'm, um, I was wondering if you could perhaps say what is wrong with that? Um, it gets up basically. I think it gets. I get. I think it gets at the wrong end. How how explanation works, understanding works, when we're trying to understand one another. I think there's a way of understanding one one another that that is um, that's part and parcel of our uh, rationalizing explanation. If you want, that's the the model of explanation where we. We talk about what they do in terms of why and uh, what reason do they have for doing these things. There are many things we could mean by asking that question. There isn't just one, for one thing. But but that seems to be a very different kind of explanation uh, from the one when you start uh, looking for causal explanation in the way that it's presently conceived the paradigm picture in philosophy of mind, or sorry, in philosophy in general, which is the idea that causation is a relation between a relation and extension, or an inductive relation and extension between two independently identifiable events. And that whole picture seems to be a uh, not overlapping very nicely with the with the picture um, that you get from how reason explanation to the extent that it works how it actually works. Now that doesn't stop me from saying uh, <laughs> saying that there that there are perfectly good things you can say about uh, causal claims that you can make, um, but one of the things I'm trying to do is I'm trying to accept. Um, my opponents, let's say you accept something like that picture of causation, and it is a pretty dominant picture of causation, then it leads me into the search for the, the events that are going to, that are going to, um, that are going to be the terms of the, the so-called causal relation. And what happens when I can't find one of those events? Is it true that every time I ascribe reasons to somebody, um, I'm committed to saying that something occurred, some sort of triggering event, which is identifiable as a reason or a belief-desire pair or a, at bottom a belief-desire pair. And, um, and then with all that picture come the metaphysical problems of how to understand how that could be both a content-bearing and therefore bear a rational relation to the action and at the same time be some kind of mechanistic explanation. But if if okay, so if um if a reasons explanation um is not a causal explanation, I take it that's what you're uh, saying, or at least not always. Certainly not always, okay. and I think a better way to put it would be to say the the kind of explanation that we get in in reason explanation um, or the or the explanatory um, burden of, of of reason explanation is not served by seeing it as this kind of causal relation in the way that I spelled out. Um, I, I don't have any problem with 
claims of the kind that the um, the captain's bravado, for example, or his idiocy caused the the ship to um, run aground. But if we talk in that kind of relaxed sort of way, nobody would um, nobody would imagine that among the things the investigators are going to have to look at when they when they examine the shipwreck is something called the captain's idiocy. So if if that's a perfectly legitimate way of talking, but then once you start thinking about, in a philosophical way, some of those other commitments to what you want the causal relation to look like, then then I think you you're going to get into trouble. Now let me just say since then I don't I actually don't accept that that dominant view of causation. I think that also gets us in trouble. But in this book, by and large, I accept that position and then show if you think that this is what causation is, then I think you're going to get in trouble if you think that reason explanation uh, is a kind of causal explanation. So if you, as as I read the book, um, and I'm just trying to formulate your, uh, you know, a way to encapsulate your alternative, it, it, it seemed to me like a form of uh, what's called instrumentalism in, in philosophy of science, um, where the uh, the role of a, of a propositional attitude description is not to pick out a particular mental event in our heads that plays a causal role, uh, but instead it's it's in some sense shorthand for some observable pattern, um, and as you put it, pattern of thoughts. Uh, doings and sayings, or something along those lines. Um, could you could you explain um, what your alternative view is, and if instrumentalism does or does not capture it? It's a good question, and I, you know, when I was thinking about this many years ago, I was very attracted to the instrumentalist position, um, but. Uh, I'm one thing that I I do worry about it is that it actually takes a it actually makes a move in in a in a kind of philosophical um, discussion that I'm that I'm in the process of trying to reject. So let me put it to you in this kind of way. Um, it go back to you're you're coming from a philosophy of science point of view, but if you think about Mackey and uh, what he says about normative properties in ethics and he says they're very queer indeed in a way I would I would like to agree with them wholeheartedly and say yes they are queer indeed but rather than saying that um, um, going in some, to something like an eliminativist position uh, and on some versions of instrumentalism and say therefore um they purport to refer, but they, but they in fact don't. Or they re, they purport to refer, but they what they refer to is is a mere a, a mere fiction. Uh, my move is a little bit more radical, one that says they don't even purport to refer. You're mis, you're mis, you're misunderstanding what the role of some of these expressions, what the role is, um, or what the roles are. And it's that way that I, I, I don't think that either I or, for example, a Wittgenstein or a Ryle can even be accused of uh, 
the position that's closest to that in philosophy of mind, which is the logical positivist view of behaviorism. Um, it's not the case that there, that these mental... Um, here's my positive view now. It's not the case that... Um, a mental attitude description is just identical to some sort of pattern or behavioral pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, it's our way of making sense of um, something, our way of making sense, or way of abstract, abstracting over uh, all kinds of possible patterns of, of the very familiar kinds. And thereby, and that therefore gives us some kind of um, some kind of way of categorizing it and, and putting it into a sense-making uh, context, and, and it wasn't any where it wasn't before. So, just to use an example of pride, just a character trait explanation. When I say that it's because of her pride that she refused to allow us to pay the bill. Um, I am referring you to to a way of uh, a way of looking at uh, what a person, not just this person, but what a person in general, uh, the kinds of things that she she would be doing. Um, but by the way, if you were interested in finding out what those kinds of things would be and how how various they are, multifarious they are, you'd want to read Pride and Prejudice, for example, because that's a lovely study. Uh, on the notion of pride, this is this is something Ryle is uh, quite clear about as well. Um, and but that's not to say that pride just is. Uh, it depends on what you mean by is. So if you think that pride is something to be something to be added in our list of ontological um, things, then you're going to be disappointed because it's it's not a thing. It's an abstraction but it's an abstraction that's got a, an explanatory message to play. It's got a certain kind of um, a story to tell with it uh, that helps you to see the actions in a new light, if you want. A new light. And what's that new light? Well, I'd have to talk to you and give you the story that I would give a, a, a young child about why people or how people act when they're acting from pride. So... Um Okay, so the t- two two sort of questions come up um, at at this point. Um, so, for example, to to continue the pride uh, example, um, you you say pride is a is a tool to categorize ways of acting, thinking, and feeling, um, and you've just described that in a in a very very clear manner. Um, so, so one of the questions that's going to arise is um, since the since the the elements of what is being categorized include mental things, mental items such as thinking uh, and feeling. Um, how are those things going to be explained uh, within your view? Um, because that it, it would seem like, or sorry. Somebody from the more dominant view might say, well, that's fine. There are plenty of uses of propositional attitude descriptions, trait descriptions, and so forth, which can be given this sort of, uh, this sort of uh, practices gloss that you do. Um, but they are going, but w- w- 
but what is going to be included in those um, ways of acting, thinking, and feeling are the types of uh, are the types of cognitive states that I'm talking about. You know, me, the information processing person. Um, so what? How, so are you are you leaving room for uh, an information processing account uh, in addition to this account for certain? uses of propositional attitude expressions and trait character traits and so forth um so what is your relationship to the thoughts and feelings uh that are included in the uh the items the patterns that are characterized that are categorized when pride and propositional attitudes and so forth are are used to um to categorize those? Mm, good question. Um, so you're right to say that the, the example of a character trait is just a, a kind of an easy, easier way to see the general idea, which I think is a story you can tell about um, propositional attitude descriptions such as so-and-so believes that such-and-such such, or wants that such-and-such such, or even with some complications knows as well. Um, and uh, and you're absolutely right that one of the and this is the this is the the kind of pattern that I'm talking about when I say that um, Carrie, for example, believes that um, um, that she believes in a, a mechanistic story about the mind, um, and somebody else says to me, "You've made a claim," and I want to. I want to know what makes what 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 gives you the authority to make that claim about what Carrie believes. I want you to defend your description. Then I'm responsible um, to give some kind of um, justification for my ascription. Now I'm very careful here not to say evidence that I know, but I'm I'm just I'm I'm responsible for saying what I. What makes me say? What makes me think that that Carrie believes such a thing? And then I'm going to talk about various things you say on YouTube, or various things I've heard you say to your students, or various things that I've read. Um, and if I knew you very well, and I, I spent time with you, uh, and I saw your facial expressions, and I saw how pained you got when when people when people deny that 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 sort of view, and I see how you beat your head against the wall and 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 stuff. Then I I can talk about I can even say she feels very strongly about this, and I've seen I've even seen her face get white when the when the view is denied. Um, these are these are all kinds of things that I'm able to appeal to when I want to say something about what what Carrie believes. And I also can appeal to your thoughts, of course, because I've got access to your thoughts through your writing and through what you say and through what you teach. So nothing though, in in and I think that this is this is something I've learned over time. Nothing in that story um, commits you to there being something that's essentially hidden or 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 um, something that I can never have access to. So in other words, you couldn't say that what it is for Carrie to really believe this is something that we'll never know and we never 
can know because whether or not these processors are going on not in her brain, according to you guys, if I'm right about this, but some sort of um, abstract level between the brain and the synapses and the electrochemical signals and all that, but something something in between that and uh, and some of what you can attribute to her at the personal level. Um, I that sounds to me like I could never use that sort of layer in any of my justifications for why I would ascribe to you this perfectly this perfectly normal belief that you 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 have and so it doesn't your story doesn't actually it doesn't actually match up with what we do when we defend our 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 descriptions of propositional attitudes and not only that if you were to suggest that you've got the theoretical advantage and that we sh- I should move I should move toward your kind of approach, then I'd bring up all the problems that it's got. Like, <laughs> how do you reconcile the causal story with the the pattern story that I've just told you? The other the sense making pattern. Are you committed to a view about causation that brings in something like psychological laws? How do you explain that those, uh, that those laws, how do you explain the viability of those laws? Because now they're sounding a lot like the principles or norms of rationality that we began with, and so forth and so on. And there will be a lot of stuff to talk about with self-knowledge too. That's the general picture. So what I'm not going to allow you to do in, in, in order, in, in a very short response to your Question: Is I'm not allowed. I'm not going to allow you to hijack the notions of thoughts and feelings, um, and go cognitive with them. If that's if that's, it looks like that's in the middle of kind of begging the question against the position I'm trying to to recommend. How does that sound? Um, it does. Although I mean, it sounds it sounds um, it sounds like a robust answer. Uh, um, <laughs> I'm. I suppose I'm. I'm trying to see. I mean, one of the the worries here is um, uh, that all these, you know, uh, symptoms or or well, you do use the disease uh, me- metaphor or analogy in your book. But uh, let's put it this way: if um, you want to, I take it. Um, uh, assert a, a stronger connection between my white face, my writings, what I say, and so forth, um, and and the the nature, if I can put it that way, of uh, of a propositional attitude or of a character trait. Um, whereas it, a cognitivist will say something like, "Those are all." Uh, you know, maybe they're you know very closely connected. Um, you know, expressions of the thought or the feeling or whatever, um, but they're not defined in terms of that. They're not. They're they're sort of they're uh, they're expressions of it, but uh, they are not um, sort of constitutive of it. That's right. They'll they'll if I if I can add to that um, on your behalf, they'll say, "Tell me if you like this." They'll say something like, we, we do our best with the conceptual resources we have to gesture 
um, at the the real nature of propositional attitudes with our what you're calling Tanny, our propositional attitude expressions. But those propositional attitude expressions actually function to refer to something in the real world. Call them propositional attitudes. And it's up to our best science and our best cognitive science in particular to figure out, to tell us what the nature of those attitudes, those properties, those events, those processes really are. Uh, that's the, and you're not, you're doing your conceptual work, but you're not getting at the, the story of the phenomena. Uh, you're talking about the concept of mind and you're not talking about mentality. Right. <laughs> right. So does, is that that captures the position nicely, right? It, it it is. It's it's certainly one way, and 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 and, uh, and I might add to that, and and then invite you to to come back um, at it. Um, uh, everything you say, perhaps about propositional attitudes, uh, and you know, folk psychology in general, um, might very well have an explanation. Uh, the way you give it. Um, but there is going to still be a story that uh, that is mechanistic, that it does involve uh, events in the brain that, that in some sense encode or represent. Um, and those are going to be an essential part of uh, any story of, of human behavior. Um, so, so in a sense, the response is, you know, take your propositional attitudes. You know, that that's folk psychology. Maybe those terms function the way you say they do. But we, we still want this other information processing story. Um, and maybe they're just, you know, complementary stories. And, the, and the, 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 the philosophy of mind that we've been talking about um, divides into two. You know, there's, there's the rationality, reasons giving, patterns uh, captured by our, our folk attitudes and so forth. And then there's these other, you know, cognitive items that we're looking for. And there's just two different stories to be given. Okay. Um, well, let me, let me, let me just say something to correct just to, to correct something that you said sure which is that um, so I don't I think I'm, I'm going to have to come clean and say that um, if you think that propositional attitudes are um, the reference as it were of propositional attitude expressions then I'm going to stop you there and say actually I don't think that the role of these expressions is to refer to um, something, the nature of which is 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 mysterious and needs somebody to investigate. I think that the expressions function in a way where where I we can tell a story and 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 this layer, this cognitive layer, uh, has got very little to to do with that particular story. Now, as far as I've not, I also have to be very careful to make sure that that it's understood that there's a certain philosophical rationale for the cognitive sciences that I'm, I find um, is within my target range, right within my target range. 
it's very different uh, for me to for me to characterize myself, and I don't think I would dare characterize myself as somebody who's critical of what gets done in the cognitive sciences, because for all I know, um, people could take um, to use your language an instrumentalist view toward their their theoretical posits. And they could say it helps us to build 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 robots if we if we look at this by doing some kind of functional boxology and and whatever and we 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 look at it in terms of these tasks and whether or not the robots are actually working in this way or working with a different kind of architecture is is neither here nor there. Um, I wouldn't. I I have nothing to say about how people want to to go ahead and get to the get to whatever their their solution is if that's what they're trying to do for example build build expert systems or or build something like that it's when it's when philosophers say that uh it's that kind of work that's going to tell us about the nature of of the mental that i can put my foot down and say um not unless it 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 actually marries a lot more with what it is that i think we're all supposed to be investigating together. So I think at one point in the book, I, I, I confront the, oh, somebody like the psychofunctionalist who says, um, yes, I actually might be straying quite a bit from what um, some people call folk psychology. Um, uh, but that's, that's fine with me. Or I admit that my intuitions about Swamp Man or zombies uh, go against um, common morality, um, but 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 that's up to me as a scientist to recommend these kinds of conceptual changes uh, because this is the subject matter that of my of my theorizing. It leads me here, and this is where I have to go. And I I'm then free to say, well, hold on. I thought you were giving us a story about um, thinking or. Uh, beliefs or or um, intelligence or any number of, of these sorts of things and these are words that don't these are concepts that don't belong to any particular theory so you'd better show what the link is between between my story and your story and if we start diverging so much then I'm going to put my foot in put my foot down and say I, d- I don't want to go in your particular direction um, and just just as an aside, I, I'm not I'm not also sure that there aren't going to be some people in your own um, kind of neck of the woods who want to say, "What's that got to do with the brain?" Because there's, there's certainly there's certainly a wonderful story to be told about brain chemistry and 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 gosh, I'm looking now. I'm working with some people looking at emotions and, and the amygdala and the hypothalamus and and I need to learn about this stuff but um, I don't think I need to uh, posit a layer of, of by the way either cognitive processes there in, 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 inside the brain as it were or that supervene on the brain nor do I would even do that even with something like an emotion, I would rather say, look, when people are angry, this this sort of chemical gets secreted, blah, blah, blah. I don't see why I can't uh, tell the two stories um, 
in a way that doesn't have to mix them in such complicated ways. That's that's where what I'm trying to explore now in my work to come. Um, I, I don't like this crossing of pictures, as Wittgenstein would say, but that doesn't stop me from. I mean, I would I would be crazy to say that that brain science isn't um, something that's going to teach us a lot and, and maybe even since I my view about concepts is that, that we we might we might be in for some concept revision and we might eventually get rid of some of these concepts as we're as we're um, learning more about the brain. I haven't caught up and I don't think I'll ever ca- catch up with Paul Churchland on this. Um, uh, I don't think that our uh, the kinds of concepts that we've been talking about are, are part of a folk theory. I think they're um, something that we're brought up with is in terms of a, a certain kind of practice. And, um, but there's no reason they can't evolve and they can't change in the light of certain kinds of um, empirical work. It's just that there's something about the cognitive, uh, the cognitive layer that strikes me as, a, as unhelpful and a mixing of pictures if you try to then use that layer to say that, that we're going to find out about the nature of mentality by looking at it, it might be perfect, perfectly useful to repeat if you're going to build um, machines or not. I mean, some people think that that architecture is uh, not very helpful. So, um, I, I mean, it, it, it sounds like perhaps... Um the question here is, um, I mean, I don't want to put it in terms of, you know, who gets to use the word mind or mentality. Um, that, that, that's not a terribly interesting debate. But the, the interesting debate is um, whether what's, what does go on in the brain, uh, what, what, in a word, whether there is a missing middle here um, between mind as you know, in terms of patterns of of behavior or practices um, embodied, you know, in a society and in a whole body, um, and that's the level of mind. It's the the organism and its environment, um, and then there's brain processing, and that's it. Um, and the opposite view is well, no, there's there's lots of different layers here. Some of those layers are going to be purely neural. Um, and then there's going to be in between sort of information processing where, you know, information is encoded. Uh, we recall some of that in memory. We use it in uh, thinking and perception. Um, and that deserves to be called cognitive. Um, even if, you know, if, if I give you the word mind um, and we don't want to quite call it mental. Um, so do you do, do you deny that? Is is well, no? I think that's a very careful way to put it, and I um, I I again I I I think that kind of some of my worry is is the. The, the philosophical claims that are made on behalf by philosophers that are made on behalf of what cognitive scientists do. And I think that's much more a target than, than 
than some of the the actual work that that goes on and i don't i've never actually looked at the work that goes on to be critical of it so i very much am within the philosophical sort of camp and as you know some of the the people i i'm i'm i take as opponents here are the people who do want to say this is how we learn about uh intelligence or the mind or or what beliefs are or what uh even what rationality is. And you know that some people have actually made extraordinary claims. Um, some of the people writing um, in, in cognitive science or artificial intelligence literature as well are, are denying that we can, be, we can make sense of freedom because of the, the mechanistic, or that we must give up the idea that we're free, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, I think it... There's no easy answer to this question, and I think that I have to be—I have to be clear in saying that there's there's certain kinds of philosophical claims that are being made by philosophers on behalf of some of the work that gets done. And I think that if I were to have sit down and talk to some of the uh, the cognitivists, the scientists who are doing some of these this work and using this this layer, as we're calling it as a theoretical model, um, we might agree that, that wonderful progress is being made in terms of um, how we understand certain things like perception or memory. Um, but I think if you were to then say that this is what perception is, I would have to remind you about all kinds of things um, in, in, involving how we use the expression see, hear, taste, etc., that might show that there are other things involved than anything that could be going on um, in this this kind of strange layer. I mean, just to give you an example, um, the whole idea of zombies is a philosophical experiment that that says there's something about a layer. It's not the cognitive layer, but it's the layer of um, what's it like layer, as it were. This is from another area of philosophy of mind. And without this phenomenological layer, then then no matter what the person does, how they, what they say, how white their face gets, how they react, how they complain, how they cry, how they do all this stuff, sorry, what the creature does, mm-hmm. um, we're not able to say that it's that it's um, that it's minded, and and some of the people have drawn and have been, well, have been quite explicit in in saying that if if I turned out to be a a zombie, they would, even though they couldn't know it in principle, if they were to know it, they would reject me and want nothing to do with me before again. That to me, that's extraordinary. So it's again. I'm being, being very careful to say, look, look what you want to do. Where do you want to take these uh, ideas, and and uh, let's talk about it. And then I I show you where I'm going to put my foot down. So well, you, yeah. Go ahead. No, no. Um, uh, well, you sort of you you raised a question that 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 has been um, an issue. You know, zombies, of course. Um, and uh, of course, as as you are well aware, zombies are you know precisely the sort of case that that many many uh, may, many people in philosophy of mind will will 
um, insist is is a reason to reject um, any sort of uh, behaviorist or functionalist or presumably Rileyan um, some sort of account uh, precisely because all these uh, all this evidence that you have for ascribing and that may be perfectly acceptable um, and yet there's nothing going on inside um, and and you know these are just this is just our standard argument right yes. um, so maybe you could say you know how you um, how you deal with those particular uh, cases yeah I do by by, by in fact, questioning what they might, what they could possibly mean um, by um, we start out by the idea of I, I think I know what you mean by what's going on inside. Um, now let's see what that's got to do with smelling and tasting and hearing and the other kinds of what so-called consciousness concepts on one on one strand of what we might mean by consciousness um, and then I, I I imagine uh, zombie John <laughs> and say about zombie John gosh he's um, let's see let's compare him to to real John uh, and and lo and behold if I'm worried about whether zombie John uh, Sorry, real John can see something or hear something. I I perform the normal sorts of tests, and um, he passes those tests when he puts on his glasses or when he reacts in a certain way, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then I ask, um, what what possible justification would I have? Um, and now this isn't a matter of evidence. This is a matter of uh, again my um, my ability to back up my claim to use to use the descriptions that I'm using or the to use the the concepts that I'm using to apply to as it were um, to explain or to ascribe as it were to to zombie John what possible um, reason would they be able to give for saying that although I can do this with 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 real John. I'm not allowed to use these very same um, I, I justification conditions, as it were, for attributing these concepts to Zombie John. And I find that I find that very odd. If I'm if I'm allowed to to give the reasons, for example, that I gave for uh, ascribing to you the the belief that the mechanistic picture is the correct one, it's very, very strange that I can't do that for zombie carry. And I think that that, if people realize that our consciousness concepts, those kinds of perceptual concepts, for example, um, the justification conditions for my, my, my ascribing them are met in all kinds of ways, but interestingly enough, they're all, they're all public kinds of ways. And that isn't to say that um, there might be something that I don't see because it's something that's something that's hidden from me, but it's not hidden from me in the way that the zombie um, justification conditions are somehow hidden from you. Um, those are in principle inaccessible and always so. 
So something's gone wrong at the, the point of language here, because I, I don't even know what they mean when they say that zombie John can't see. I would hire him for my, you know, or smell. If I'm, if I'm opening up a perfume company and, and zombie John uh, performs the tests that I want and is able to distinguish um, patchouli from, from uh, um, raw tobacco and all these wonderful wood scents that go into these male perfumes, um, and you were to say, don't be silly, he can't smell, I would just laugh at you. You can smell for the purposes of, of making perfume, thank you very much, and that's what I want for, for smelling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, huh. Well, that, that sort of, uh, uh, in a sense, it's like, well, uh, uh, one response is, well, pain. You know, that's that's the standard one. Um, but another one is that uh, before we were talking about the cognitive, the uh, information processing uh, view and building robots and so forth. Um, and it sounds like uh, on the one hand, the, we'll get an account by the by the cognitive, the information processing view in which we are. Maybe we give, uh, we build robots that can act in certain ways, um, and and yet if we do, like as long as they do act in these certain ways, uh, there's no reason to, you know, distinguish them from from any other anybody else who who has a mind, because the mind just is whatever satisfies our. Um, uh, our patterns that that we use the terms to ex- to uh, pick out right or to express is that is that have I confused matters no I think that's right I think I, I like your way of putting it the the way I would I, I would put it is that there are a, a bunch of different sorts of um, considerations that we use uh, that would justify our ascriptions of these mental concepts and um, and if you if we were able to build well, if we were able to build um, robots such as uh, was it Daniel and Steven Spielberg's AI or like Rachel or um, um, ET, uh, let me go with Rachel and uh, and whoever Harrison Ford's character is in Blade, uh, yeah. Blade Runner. Yeah, the replicants. The replicants. That's right. Um, these are all supposed to. These run, uh, these run foul of historical representational accounts and philosophy of mind. And um, I, I, I think that's extraordinary that they would be denied, um, as they are, moral status in the, in the films because they're not considered to have minds. I don't see any... Um, you're using the word mind in a different way if you say then from you're using sorry not the word mind but of course the word mind is itself an abstraction over all kinds of um, abilities right and uh, and if you 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 build something that's got all of these abilities and it's got all all of these other kinds of characteristics that I that I that I that I have these even gosh, I'll even have these feelings toward them as happens in 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 these 
in these programs where the people have faces, including ET, right? It's something about their facial expressions that's very, very important here. Um, I find the idea extraordinary that we would deny the mentality. So I have nothing to say about, oh gosh, whether or not some things, such things could be built or whether they could be found in other, other planets. But if, I, I would have to say if they were, then you'd, you'd it almost sounds like brute prejudice, <laughs> speciesism, yeah. to deny them mentality. Well, now, just about pain, um, because yeah. you're right, that's going to be something that will be brought up. And I think it's true that people can, um, they, they can try to hide their pain behavior. They can try, but um, even when they're trying to hide their pain, pain behavior, I think you can often tell when somebody something isn't quite right. But if you try, as Putnam suggested in an early article, um, that we could actually completely divorce the connection between pain on the one hand and pain behavior on the other, so that it, it is a pure causal, um, that is contingent connection between the one and the other, uh, and he agrees that he's committed to the idea that um, a race could be an excruciating pain and we'd never we'd never know it because they'd behave just like us. Just try. I mean, just as an experiment, pick your favorite favorite romantic novel. Um, get 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 the bit where Scarlet and Rhett are just getting together and they're looking into one one another's eyes. And about to, whatever, um, and ask yourself, ask yourself to imagine now that one of them is in excruciating pain, <laughs> and but not, but the I think he says something like the 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 hell of the the you know the something excruciating beyond all description, um, and I think you'll do what you just did, Carrie. I think you'll just start giggling because you're not going to know what it is you're supposed to be asked to do here. So uh, let, let me, uh, we're, we're, we're running, uh, running close on time. So I, I do want to just, uh, you know, ask a rather flat-footed question at this point, which is, uh, do you, I mean, we were talking about, you know, what gets called part of mind and what doesn't and and i'm just i'm just curious so are you saying that uh experiencing experiences um shouldn't really i mean the things that we you know feel i mean intuitively and and they're subjective and we we you know we can hide them to some degree um are you saying that that's just not part of what mental terms are all about no not at all okay not at all i mean we were talking uh about propositional attitudes for most of the uh well propositional attitude expressions i want to say for most of the um discussion and then when we started moving to 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 feelings um uh i think the the philosophical view that i don't like is that that that, that feelings are um we might they might be they might be uh, as it were form some sort of layer on their own that that's got no kind of um 
least conceptual link, if you want, to to the characteristic behavior or characteristic physiological reactions, et cetera, et cetera. I'm I'm a, I'm what I'm my my real enemy here is the the people who think that the the word pain or uh, is actually or the word the expression sees green um, is given its it's given its meaning by something that only the person who's seeing it as it were can 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 experience that's the view that I find objectionable I don't find the view that we that we see things and that we hear things and that we feel certain ways that only we can express um, but I don't think that you are going to be able to make anything of a private language, which is what some people want to do from from those kind of ordinary considerations. On the contrary, I think that we learn we, we learn how to express these feelings um, by using the, the language that we all speak. So it's the only claim that 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 uh, that you object to. Which is that the own that that such terms only refer to these sort of inner uh, feelings, experiences, whatever. Well, we'd have to do we'd have to do have another long conversation about what we mean by inner, and then I think what we we would probably do is come to a an agreement about the way that that, that it makes sense to call them inner, um, which which wouldn't would not land us with something so inner that we would never ever be able to know if they were having these experiences in principle right that's how i would i would i would try to to take that conversation fair enough um so we're we're almost out of time um and so i would like to know where where are you going next i mean are you uh working on a follow-up uh series of essays or book um uh, what, what's your next project? Well, I've got a couple. I'm I'm trying to consolidate some of my work on 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 Ryle because I've been doing some um, quite a lot of work on trying to get uh, probably a better a better statement of what I think Ryle is up to than 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 you see um, in a lot of the the literature on him. So I'm uh, that's a, a, a slow burning as it were. A slow cooking project, um, and I'm also interested in developing, trying to bring out this 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 what I call philosophy, but trying to bring out this this manner of doing it in a way um, that's a little bit more explicit, so that it brings together some of the. I mean, I'm calling it partly because what Ryle and Wittgenstein also talk about it this way, but I I call it conceptual cartography. And it's a way of, um, as it were, investigating important uh, philosophical ideas or concepts. But by looking at the kind of commitments that we have, the kind that I've been talking to you about with respect to descriptions of, of, of beliefs, for example, or pain, um, and, and trying to show how some of, of that sort of approach, uh, which is in common between Ryle and Wittgenstein, but also... Um, I think wisdom, John Wisdom, is much overlooked and has a lot to say. And and I think some somehow at some point we're going to come into conflict with what with what we learn to do Anglo 
um, Anglo-American philosophers have wanted to do in terms of following some of the, gosh, some of the um, trying to reconcile what what people were doing um, with the, the formal formalizing their their logic instead of using just sorts of informal logic. I think that I suspect that that's, there's going to be a tension there, and I'm I'm interested in one day kind of working that out. Oh, very that's good. Um, so I think we uh, we are now officially. Um, out of time, but um, I want to thank you for a, for a wonderful discussion. Um, it's fun. Thank you very much. Yeah. So uh, thanks again, and uh, I look forward to reading your further work. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Julia Tenney, reader in philosophy of mind at the University of Kent, about her new book, Rules, Reasons, and Self-Knowledge, just out from Harvard University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed our podcast, and thank you for listening.